the LexisNexis Environmental Law Community Podcast. Presentations and interviews with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, Brad Martin of Martin Law on the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Sackett versus EPA. The opinions expressed by guests interviewed on LexisNexis legal podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of Reed Elsevier Incorporated, LexisNexis, subsidiary companies, shareholders, employees, or customers, and should not be considered legal advice. I'm Steve Persler, and with me on this LexisNexis legal podcast is Brad Martin, managing partner of Martin Law. Brad is principal environmental counsel to more than two dozen companies. It also represents local governments and NGOs. He's worked with clients in nearly every sector of the economy across the country, including manufacturing, refining, transportation, food processing, agricultural, remediation, real estate, and financial services companies. Brad has represented parties at more than 80 federal and state Superfund sites in negotiation with EPA and the Justice Department, natural resource trustees, state agencies, and Indian tribes. He represents clients in most major industrial sectors, at urban waterways, mining sites, manufacturing facilities, landfills, commercial developments, airports, rail yards, and many other industrial facilities. Brad's the president of the American College of Environmental Lawyers. And along with Steve Jones and Russell Prue, Brad has authored the Emerging Issues Analysis, Martin Law on Sackett versus EPA. Unanimous Supreme Court allows pre-enforcement review under Clean Water Act and Sackett case. Available from LexisNexis. We appreciate you taking some time to talk with us today, Brad, about the Supreme Court's decision in Sackett versus EPA. You bet. Set the scene for us, if you will, with a brief background of this case. Okay. Well, easy for me to do from Seattle because this case took place out here in the West. Michael and Chantel Sackett are um, two individuals that live in Idaho, northern Idaho. Um, They bought some property near a lake, Priest Lake, which is a pretty little place. And they wanted to develop their property and, and, and build a home on it. It's not a very big parcel, less than an acre. It was about, you know, two or three properties in from the lake, so not right on the lake. And um, the Sackett started to develop their property. They put some fill down so that they could start construction. And not long after they started the work, they received a letter from the EPA telling them that the property that they had purchased was a wetland and that they had to remove the fill that they had just put down that they couldn't build there. They were obviously surprised. Their house, as I mentioned, wasn't right on the lake. It was two or three lots over, and there were some structures on the properties between theirs and the lake, and they didn't see that it was an obvious wetland, and it wasn't. So they thought that that must have been an error. And they got into a conversation with EPA, and and EPA said, no, it's not an error. We've determined this property to be a wetland, and you can't build on it and remove your fill. And if you don't, we're going to penalize you. And those penalties run to $37,500 a day, each day that you're in violation. And in fact, uh, if you're found to have violated the order, we add another $37,500 a day for having failed to comply with our order. So it's $75,000 a day. That's hefty. It's hefty for anyone. Yeah. Especially when you're just trying to build a house on Priest Lake. So what did they do? Well, Steve, they they were not able to resolve this with EPA directly. It's Region 10 here in Seattle. Uh, and so they brought a lawsuit in the federal district court in Idaho. And they said this EPA action was arbitrary and capricious under something called the Administrative Procedures Act, which is the 
statute that governs basically right to appeal administrative agency action. And they said, we want to have our day in court. And the judge in Idaho said, well, you can't. He said, you can't bring your case against the EPA appealing what they have done is improper or, as we say, arbitrary and capricious because you're not entitled to be here. And the reason you're not entitled to be here is because uh, this court held that there was a, a bar, which they call a pre-enforcement review bar, that says essentially that you can't get review under the Administrative Procedures Act until the EPA sues you, and then you can appeal, you can you can oppose their action. They sue you to enforce their order. You can then appeal that. But if they haven't sued you, you can't sue them. Sort of a one-sided type of arrangement. And that's what the district court said. And there was actually some precedent for that. There are other cases around the country which reached the same conclusion under the Clean Water Act. So the judge wasn't out of line, was actually in step with a lot of other cases around the country that said, that's right, in order to sort of promote environmental protection, make sure that EPA orders get followed, you can't appeal an EPA order until and unless the EPA first sues you. Meanwhile, of course, you're running up a lot of penalties. And so the Sacketts appealed the district court order to the circuit court. They did. They went up to the Ninth Circuit. They got the same result. They then petitioned to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court took certiorari, which as you know, they only do in maybe one out of a hundred cases. Most of us in the environmental bar, once we saw this case was accepted for review, knew it was going to happen. And there's a couple of reasons. One, the Ninth Circuit here is notorious for being uh, reversed by the Supreme Court, particularly in environmental cases. They have in a number of, of other recent cases like the the others that were decided in the last couple of years. But also, it was pretty clear that this was a very sympathetic set of facts and that they were going to try to send a message here to the EPA uh, and those that attended the oral argument on this pretty much saw that message being sent, that all of the justices came to the same conclusion, which was, come on, uh, these folks have to be able to appeal an order like this. Uh, they have to at least be given their day in court before you can just start running $75,000 penalties against two individuals in Idaho. And the decision, as you know, in Sackett was 9-0. to zero. Uh, with every member of the court reaching that conclusion rather rather easily because it is such a sympathetic set of facts. But what's interesting about Sackett is not the case itself, not just the case itself, I and mean, it's an important result certainly in the world of wetlands and, and jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act, but what's really interesting is how far will this decision now get pushed because there will be people that read more into the decision than what I just said. Um, there's two ways to see this case. You can see it as a fairly narrow decision, and some do. You can see it as very broad, and some do. Well, let's get into that a little bit more. Talk about how some people will view this as a narrow decision. The narrow part is that this is a case really about whether there is a right uh, to appeal an order about EPA's designation of, a, of land as, as a wetland. And so when you get an order from the EPA that says this land that you want to build on is a wetland, that itself isn't, isn't sort of a clear-cut issue. The, the case that also has to be considered in connection with Sackett is this other Supreme Court case from the Clean Water Act called Rapinos. And the Rapinos case from several years ago is a case about designating wetlands. And it's about when property is properly designated um, under the Clean Water Act as a wetland and when it's not. What's the test that's going to be used? 
Uh, part of the problem in this case is that it, it's not entirely clear what the test is for determining whether land is a wetland or not. Uh, the Rapinos case was a 4-4-1 decision, no clear-cut majority. And the way the case has come out and been interpreted by EPA and the Corps of Engineers that enforce fill permits under the Clean Water Act is that it's a case-by-case basis. So that you're left to the discretion and the judgment of an EPA employee about whether you can build on your land or not. Well, with that kind of discretion, you could see that this is sort of uh, an area that's ripe for controversy. And because the the law isn't entirely black and white about uh, when wetlands do or don't exist, uh, giving somebody the right to appeal that determination, which is, after all, just by sort of an individual employee of an agency, seems right. And so uh, on the narrow side, you could say that what Sackett's all about is that somebody who receives a designation of whether their land is buildable or not because it has a wetland or doesn't have a wetland is something that they ought to have a right to appeal. Okay, well, that that affects some people, a fair number of people. It's not unimportant because there's a lot of wetlands in this country. And I think that if you do have the right to appeal that designation now following this case, it'll affect a lot of property development, and it's important in its own right. Um, But that is what I would call the narrow interpretation, uh, whether the EPA has jurisdiction under the Clean Water Act over a particular piece of land, and if they do, um, uh, whether you have a right to appeal that designation. So that's what the Sackett case uh, at the narrow side has to do with. All right, so now flip that around and and talk about the broad interpretation. Well, um, what this case writ large is about is when you have a right to challenge an action by the EPA. And uh, in addition to the Clean Water Act, of course, uh, EPA issues orders under other environmental statutes, under the Clean Air Act, under the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, and under the Superfund Act. You know, hundreds and hundreds of orders, if not thousands, are issued every year. So will every one of those orders now be appealable? If the answer to that is yes, then there's going to be a lot more litigation in this country over EPA actions. And that is the floodgate concern that folks in the government have about the Sackett decision, is whether a lot of lawyers uh, will suddenly start either actually appealing or threatening to appeal pretty much anything that that agency does. You can imagine the kind of resource drain that that would create and the controversy that it would create and the workload that it would create uh, in the court system. So is that really what Sackett means? And the answer is, don't know. Hard, hard to say. Like many of these Supreme Court cases, it's not so simple. The Supreme Court doesn't decide things in a way that is so clear that lower courts can easily follow. We saw that in the Rapinoe's case that I mentioned to you, where they sort of enunciated, but in a 4-4-1 decision, exactly the contours of the Clean Water Act. We saw it in the BNSF decision of two or three years ago when they dealt in the circle context with the visibility. Again, how those issues play out in, in actual application to actual facts in real cases around the country is a lot more complex. And I think that's going to be the case here with with, uh, with Sackett. Well, how do you think uh, things you know, may play out? First of all, um, environmental practitioners generally know this already, but for those perhaps of your listeners that, that might not practice every day, there's a, a big difference between CERCLA 
and everything else in environmental law. The reason is that CERCLA has in its statute an express statutory bar from what's called pre-enforcement review. It's in Section 113 of the CERCLA statute. And none of these other laws do. They don't expressly bar review. CERCLA does. So you have to set CERCLA to the side. So if you, have, if you get a CERCLA order that says clean up your property or remove this contaminant or do this or do that. It's not appealable. It's not appealable. The second case on its face doesn't have anything to do with that. Although, let me just footnote, Steve, that issue is still out there. Uh, although the statute gives them, EPA, the right to bar uh, pre-enforcement review, there are people that have argued that the due process clause of the Constitution could invalidate that. Uh, General Electric actually tried, uh, but they brought that uh, that case, did not succeed, appealed uh, to the, cert, to the uh, Supreme Court. The Supreme Court did not grant cert. So that issue has been one that Folks have tried to appeal to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court didn't take it. There was also an argument in the Sackett case that if the Sacketts were found to be barred by a statute, could they then be allowed to appeal based on due process? Because the court found that they were not barred by a statute, it didn't reach the due process argument. So that's two cases where people have tried to say, hey, look, this just violates the Constitution. It's just not fair. And the court has not ruled on that. So... Right now, if you're in the circular world, which, which many environmental lawyers are, this case does not mean a whole lot to you, although you should still keep an eye on it because that due process argument is still out there. All right, but, but what about some of the others putting circle aside? Yeah, I mean, people, you know, are issued orders to stop doing this or stop doing that uh, or to do this or to do that under the Clean Air Act, under the Clean Water Act, under RICRA, you know, every single week, if not every single day. So are every one of those orders now immediately appealable? Well, that argument's going to be made, and it's certainly going to be tried. <laughs> and I think for your, your listeners, uh, they should start to take a close look at uh, the cases being reported, the various media outlets and, and on Lexis, et cetera, where we start to see cases playing out where folks have sought to appeal uh, Clean Water Act decisions or Clean Air Act decisions or RICRA decisions. And can they appeal them in the first place? And if they appeal them, then how broad is the review? Can they appeal all aspects of them? Can they simply appeal the jurisdictional aspects of them? Can they go back and appeal orders that have already been issued, that they're already complying with? Lots and lots of questions. So is it fair to say then that uh, we can expect to see more litigation, uh, but we may have to wait a little bit to, to, to find out the extent of it? Well, I think you will certainly see more litigation. I don't think you have to wait long. <laughs> I, I think you'll immediately see litigation. I suspect, like many of these cases, that you'll see contrary decisions coming out of different district courts and perhaps different circuits. Um, some will say that the Sackett decision should be construed very narrowly because of the consequences if it is not, because of the burden on uh, the courts, because of the burden on the agencies. Uh, and because potentially it will harm the environment. Other people will find that the case should be interpreted broadly because, after all, due process is pretty fundamental. The right to get to court and present your arguments is pretty fundamental, and that's a very strong theme in American legal thought. So you've got two very strongly held beliefs. We should protect the environment on the one hand. We should give people a day in court on the other. How those two things play out against each other is going to be what, this case is all about. So 
to sum up, what would be the big takeaway from this decision? I think the big takeaway is that if you are, if you're in the government, I think you have to be very careful about the orders that you issue because you now know that they can be appealed, they can be challenged. So certainly, again, setting aside CERCLA, before you issue that order to tell people to do something or not do something, I think you have to be very cautious that your decision is going to be upheld. And remember that environmental agencies still have the arbitrary and capricious standard. They have a, a deference, pay their decisions. So it's not they're, they're not without tools. I mean, none of those tools were impacted by this decision. You're just getting into court. What happens once you get into court really wasn't changed by this decision. So you still have to challenge an agency action as arbitrary and capricious. That's not, you know, preponderance of the evidence. That's really bad. That's a decision that, that a court would find was really bad. And that's a high hurdle. Uh, and as I say, there's the deference paid to uh, environmental decisions under the so-called Chevron deference standard. So for an environmental regulator, you know, I think you're going to be more careful before you order folks to do things because your lawyers are going to have to defend them. Um, that's one takeaway. Number two, takeaway on resources. If those orders are challenged, which I think they will be, it's going to take a lot more uh, in the way of resources, resources of agency personnel, agency lawyers, you know, the folks that have that made the decision that are going to get deposed, they're going to get dragged into court. It's just a it's just a lot more resources that could potentially be spent on justifying decisions that have been made. So those are takeaways for your listeners that are on the government side. For your listeners that are on the regulated side, I'd say that they too have to take a hard look at whether litigation is justified. And in some cases it will be. But in all cases it won't. I think still if you are the recipient of an order have to deal with the fact that potentially you could be running penalties while you're in court and eventually have to pay them. That's still a uh, very high burden to be under uh, when one is trying to vindicate one's rights. And that'll be an important thing to watch, whether whether courts will will stay the penalties while people are appealing them, uh, appealing orders. Um, you still have to deal with the arbitrary and capricious standard, the deference and all that. So you will have an opportunity to get into court, and certainly if it is worth a lot, you will do that. But remember, that's going to be easier for large corporations than it is for the individuals. What what it really means for the Sacketts is that they get to go to court now. Right. doesn't mean they win. It just means they get to go to court. And so for the many, many people that are the recipients of these orders that can't mount a vigorous defense, it may be somewhat pyrrhic victory. Maybe that I have an opportunity to go to court, but can I really afford to do it? Does the game change very much? On the other hand, for you know major corporations, trade associations, folks that are you know, in a position to go to court to address these issues, I think they will. So bottom line, Steve, I think you'll see more test cases brought, uh, not only under the Clean Water Act, but under the Clean Air Act and under RICRA to test what exactly are the contours of the Sackett decision? How far can we push this? And uh, the next couple of years, that'll be very interesting. I think you're right. But Brad, when you say, you know, you think there will be more litigation because of this case, you know, really, how much more? I think that um, we'll all be busy, but I don't, I don't think it will fundamentally lead to the filing of uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of cases. I think any lawyer has to responsibly look at it, 
look at the order and say, look, is this is this the order we want to appeal? Um, do we are we likely to win? Pick your battles and pick your battles and look at your resources. The real problem with the Sackett case from the government standpoint is that they pick the wrong facts. This was such a sympathetic case. These were just the wrong people to pick a fight with. And and it might be pointed out that the Sacketts were defended for free by a uh, the Pacific Legal Foundation that wanted this case to be heard. And so it was it was a case that I think they recognized would present uh, an issue they want to present it in a very sympathetic way. On the government side, frankly, they shouldn't have let it, uh, shouldn't have let it get that far. But they did, and uh, the result was somewhat predictable. Brad Martin, Martin Law in Seattle, thanks for coming on with us and giving up some time and discussing the Sackett versus EPA case from the Supreme Court. Hope we can do this again soon. Thanks, Brad. You bet. Talk to you again. You've been listening to a LexisNexis legal podcast. Visit the LexisNexis communities. Like the communities on Facebook. Follow them on Twitter. The LexisNexis Environmental Law Community Podcast, copyright 2012 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. I'm Steve Bursler. Thank you for listening.